The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So we are approaching quickly the end of the book of Luke. I think we've been in it for uh, 25 years, I think. Um, somehow longer than this church has been around. Uh, so that's, that's exciting. Um, it's been an incredible study uh, through Luke. Before we get into the material this morning, and we have quite a bit to cover, uh, I just want to open with a question for you guys, something to, to tuck away and think through as we uh, exposit this passage. The question is pretty simple. Uh, it's a universal question. It's a question that uh, really applies to every person in the world, every human being, no matter what your ethnic background, or the color of your skin, or um, your, your socioeconomic class, or your style, uh, everybody is faced with this one question, and it's very simple. Uh, what will you do with the person of Jesus Christ? What will you do with the person of Jesus Christ? You're either answering that question with your life, or you've answered it. But it's a question that everyone has to answer at some point. And I'm not just talking necessarily about your theological position or what, bo- what box you checked when you filled out a form. I'm talking about who is Jesus in your life. Is he your Lord? Or is he someone that you are slowly but surely, gradually moving towards the cross? And I'd suggest to you there's really no neutrality when it comes to this question. There is no opportunity for you to just simply say, I, I will not answer that question, or I wash my hands of that question. You, you are not afforded that option. You have to answer it. And, and if, you, if you choose to simply ignore it, then you're answering the question by your passivity. Who is Jesus? Will you crucify him or will you put him on the throne? Will you seek benefit only from what he can give you or will you seek him as your Lord? Will you base your decision about Jesus off what is true or what if, or off what our culture has said about him? Will you insult him by avoiding him altogether? Will you call him king with your lips and treat him like a servant as an accessory of your life? These are questions we all have to ask. Have you put him on the throne or are you putting him on the cross? Our life, in, in a sense, is sort of like a trial. We think it is, that where Jesus is on trial and we, we decide what are we to make of this Galilean, you know, this Galilean peasant, this rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago. But in reality, I would suggest to you that we're actually not putting Christ on trial. Our culture is not putting Christ on trial. Philosophy and theology and academics, they may think that Christ is on trial in their books, in their college classes, but in reality, every single person is on trial before Christ. This morning in our text, we're, we're going to look at an amazing passage. It's, it's the section of Jesus' trial before Herod and Pilate and, and the council of the Sanhedrin. And it would be really easy to to look at this through the lens uh, that Jesus is being tried by these men, but I'd actually suggest that we look at it the other way around. That Jesus is not on trial before Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin council and the crowd, but in fact, they are on trial before Christ. Because Jesus, as he sits being judged by them, knows and even states that he will judge them. 
in every human that ever lives and ever will live. He is the judge of all the earth. So what we normally do is we normally would stand and read the scripture, but it's quite a long passage. So I actually just want to go through it with you guys together, verse by verse, and then we'll kind of rethread the needle, go back and, and, and talk about it. Let me get you up to context just a little bit about where we're at in the narrative uh, in the Gospel of Luke here. Jesus has just been betrayed um, by one of his 12 disciples, Judas. Um, in the garden, Judas came with, with a, a group of guards, betrayed Jesus with a kiss, Jesus was arrested and taken off to what we'll look at this morning, his trial, which precedes his crucifixion. Now, uh, there's really six parts. Uh, We're not going to cover all of them this morning. Many of them are found in the other Gospels, but there's really six parts to the trial of Jesus. Uh, The first is that Jesus is led to the house of Annas in the middle of the night. A lot of people don't realize this, but the, the real trial of Jesus didn't happen in the daytime. It happened in the middle of the night. Jesus was arrested in the garden sometime around midnight, was led to the the house of this man, Annas, who was the father-in-law of the current-day high priest, who was Caiaphas. That was stage one in his trial. Annas, even though he was not technically the high priest, he was really sort of the mob boss behind the whole deal. They brought him to the house of Annas, most likely to to access his criminal mastermind and, and find ways that they could illegally hold Jesus in contempt. That was phase one. After that, they led him in the middle of the night to the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. At the house of Caiaphas, they they invited their witnesses that they had paid to bring false witness against Christ to come and bring testimony to the high priest. Of course, none of them could line up because they were all false. So they dismissed their false witnesses. They continued to deliberate. And then when morning comes... After their illegal trial had ended, they invite the 70 members of the Sanhedrin Council to come together in the morning for an official trial. After the official trial, they establish the charges that they want to bring before Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea. They take Jesus to the house of Pilate, where he was residing, a public area, and they begin the trial with Pilate. That's step four in Jesus' trial. Pilate questions Jesus, as we'll see, sends him over to Herod, who was the puppet king of the Galilean district in the north of Israel. Herod examines him, mocks him, sends him back to Pilate for more examination. And finally, the last stage, the crowd cries out that Jesus is to be crucified. The verdict is set by Pilate, and he's sent off to the cross. Those are the six stages of the trial of Jesus. It's somewhat of a complex deal, and we're going to get into it a little bit today. Luke doesn't give us as many details as some of the others, but he gives us enough to put together the pieces. So let's jump right into it. Verse 63 of chapter 22. It's still midnight, by the way, still nighttime. While Jesus is um, caught up in this, this illegal midnight trial, it says in 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him. They beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So we see here the cruelty of the guards that are holding Jesus. They have blindfolded him and they're taking turns punching him, hitting him, striking him as hard as they possibly can. 
mocking him, taunting him, asking him, if you're a prophet, then tell us which one of us is hitting you. Now, the cruelty of this scene is, is really understood when you realize that, that when you get punched in the face, it hurts a lot less if you know it's coming. Did you know that? Because your body has this automatic system it kicks into where it actually tenses up your muscles uh, and then the blow starts to hurt a little bit less. The cruelty of this scene is that they decide to blindfold Jesus so that he doesn't know when the blow is coming. Therefore, his body can't tense up and prepare to take that blow. The irony of it is that not much has changed in thousands of years. If you go back a thousand or two years in Israel's history, they were doing the same thing, beating, mocking, killing the prophets of God. And now here is Jesus, the ultimate prophet, the one that Moses said would come that would be like him, the final prophet. And here they are, beating him, mocking him. It's nothing new. Look at verse 66. When the day came, okay, the nighttime has ended, the sun has come up, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. Now, I want to explain who the assembly of elders is for you guys. It wasn't just the group of Pharisees, as I so often actually thought it was. The, the assembly of the elders was actually something referred to as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a council of 70 members that was responsible for really adjudicating and making most of the decisions in the southern parts of, of Israel, particularly in Jerusalem. The council was made up of many different people. It was made up of Sadducees, who were the, sort of the rich, mafia, mafia-esque sort of uh, um, religious people that ran the temple. It was made up of the Pharisees, who were the religious elite, the rabbis that everyone looked to for their spirituality. It was made up of many of the wealthy people that lived in that area. So in the morning, after Jesus' illegal trial at night, the sun comes up, they, they summon all 70 of these members to come together and, and actually question publicly Christ. So the Sanhedrin comes, and they led him to their council and said, and here's the first question they ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now it's interesting because the real indictment that the Pharisees have supposedly said they had against Christ was actually that he claimed to be God. But the real question that they want to get him on record as owning up to is not whether he is God, but whether he is Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ simply means the one in the Old Testament that was said that would come and, and reestablish Israel as a, as a nation that is autonomous, as a nation that is sovereign, as a nation that is powerful. So when he's asking them this question, uh, he, he, he's essentially asking Jesus, are you the one that is to come and, and kick Rome off of the world stage and establish Israel? as a powerful entity, as a powerful nation. That's what they're asking him. And why are they asking him? They're asking him because that's what Herod's going to care, or that's what Pilate, pardon me, is going to care about. Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is claiming to be God. doesn't care. That's a religious matter, a religious issue. The only thing Pilate will care about is if Jesus is claiming to be or trying to be an insurrectionist, someone who is actually going to, 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 to bring up an uprising against Rome. So they're massaging this case in such a way where they can come up with something to accuse Jesus of that, 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 that Pilate and the Roman Empire will actually be interested in. They're asking this question, but they're not asking Jesus if he is the Messiah in the sense that Jesus knows he is. They're asking him if he is the Messiah in the sense that they have assumed that he is. 
And look how he answers them. He said to them, he answers in two parts. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So before Jesus answers, he, he prefaces his answer. He says, you know, there's really no point in me telling you guys who I am because in reality, you're not interested in the real. You're not really interested in the truth. And not only are you not interested in the truth, you're not even brave enough, you don't even have enough backbone to declare who you think I am. And here's the interesting thing about the Sanhedrin is that they may not have known that he was God. They may not have known he was the Messiah, but they sure knew that he was from God. You remember the Pharisees were there when Jesus was baptized and a a voice from heaven came from the Father declaring that this was his son. The Pharisees were present at that. They'd seen his miracles. They'd heard him speak. They knew that he was from God. They knew it. And Jesus' answer to them is, there is no point in me explaining to you theologically who I am because you don't care. And you don't even have enough gunction to make an accusation to who you think I am. All you simply do is throw rocks at me. That's the first part of his answer. Then in 69, he decides to answer them anyways. He says, but from now on, The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I can't help but think that would have just shot some shivers down the spines of these men. Who, though they're they're, they're absolutely fixated on crucifying Christ, they know in the back of their minds that this man is from God. And Jesus immediately says... You think that you're judging me, but from this point forward, I will be seated at the right hand of power and the Most High. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7, which talks about the Ancient of Days. It's a clear messianic reference. But in this this Daniel chapter 7 reference, um, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, hands over all authority to this figure, the Son of Man. It was Jesus' favorite name for himself. All authority. And then he quotes Psalm 110. He, call, he quotes Psalm 110, which says, seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus is essentially saying, you think that you are putting me on trial right now, but you have no clue that in a matter of moments, I will be at the right hand of the Father and I will judge all things. That would be a little bit terrifying, don't you think? Would it have given them pause at all to what they were doing, recognizing that the one that they were supposedly judging would judge them eternally? Jesus is trying to get them to see that though he is the Messiah, his kingdom is not the kingdom that they think he is the Messiah of. That's why he says in John 18, 36, Jesus answers them, my kingdom, this is in the same discourse, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have, fought, would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is trying to get them to see this. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. He is the Christ, but he is the Christ of a kingdom that they know nothing of. Okay? This is the reality. Verse 70. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? Now, why are they asking that? They're asking that because his reference to Daniel chapter 7 in Psalm 110, those references are so they're, they're, they're so about the power of this messianic figure and the deity of this messianic figure that they instantly so, go, okay, wait a minute. So you are saying, let's get this straight. You are saying that you are the son of God. 
And make no mistake, son of God does not mean created being. It does not mean uh, lesser than God. Son of God in that culture meant, are you saying you are equal with God? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? The question is very clear. Make no mistake, Jesus did not go to the cross saying that he was a good man, like our liberal philosophers would like us to think. Jesus went to the cross explicitly saying that he was God. Look at how he answers to them. He said to them, you say that I am. And you might go, well, that's not a very definitive answer. The NASB, the NIV, NASB, by the way, is one of the most literal translations we have, doesn't translate it, you say that I am. It actually translates it very clearly, yes, I am. His response, though he's trying to do it in such a way where he can, he can sort of avoid their claim of what they think the kind of Messiah he is, he's very explicit and very clear in his response that, yes, I am the Son of God. And upon Jesus' response, they declare in verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. In this moment, they go, what else do we need to hear? You heard it. He said it. He said he was the son of God. He said he was the Messiah. Let's crucify him. We have what we need. Let's take him to Rome. Now, I just want to note as a side note and a point of interest here that according to Jewish law, you were not able and allowed to be self-incriminating. They have not been able to call one substantial witness to the stand to actually accuse Jesus of anything. All their witnesses have been found to be lacking. All they have is this, this, this really kind of wishy-washy response of Jesus to go off of, and according to Jewish law, he can't self-incriminate. They have nothing to go off of, but yet they hear him say these words and they go, this is all we need. We have a case. Let's take it before the Supreme Court. Let's take it before Pilate. We have what we need. Everything about, listen, everything about this case was illegal. There's nothing about it that was legal according to Jewish law. Eight things here about this case that were illegal. First of all, the proceedings did not take place at the temple. According to Jewish law, a trial was to take place in the daylight in the temple. This trial happened when? In the middle of the night in the house Caiaphas. Secondly, trials were not to happen at night. I already said that. Thirdly, Jesus is allowed no defense. He has no defense attorney. He has no one arguing for him. He's alone. Fourthly, Jesus does not blaspheme in the technical sense of the term by using the divine name. He never says, I am Yahweh. He simply affirms that he is the Son of God. Fifthly, the verdict comes on the same day as the trial. This was absolutely illegal in Jewish law. You could not try someone and then post the verdict the same day. You had to wait two to three days for other witnesses to come and other information to come. They immediately hear him, his self-incriminating response, and they take him and, 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 and try to get a verdict. Sixthly, Jesus is being tried on a feast day. You weren't to do trials on a feast day. That was just something that didn't happen. Seventhly, contradictory testimony is supposed to exonerate the defendant. This is one of the coolest rules. So if, if people are coming with accusations that are clearly made up, then the trial is to be thrown out. 
no trial. There was clearly witnesses that came and testified in a way that was not on the up and up, and they didn't throw the case out. And lastly, the high priest is not supposed to issue the pronouncement of guilt. So you see just time after time how many different ways they were breaking the law in their absolute just steadfast decision to crucify this Christ. Like they were willing to do anything. They were willing to break their own judicial system. Now, Jesus is sent over to Pilate. Take a look at verse 1 in the next chapter. Then the whole company, okay, all 70 of the council of Sanhedrin rose up and brought him before Pilate. Pilate always made time in the morning for cases to be brought before him. Pilate, as you know, is in town in Jerusalem, although he had a home in Caesarea. Uh, He has come into Jerusalem because of Passover. Passover would have attracted um, literally millions of immigrants from all around Israel to celebrate the Passover feasts. Pilate is in town to make sure that there's no riots, that there's no problems. They began to accuse him to Pilate, saying, listen to their accusations, three things. We found this man misleading our nation. Now, is that true or false? Has he misled their nation? Absolutely not. Jesus, in fact, was the way and the truth and the life. He was the answer to the leading of the nation. Then, accusation two, He's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. He's, he's saying we can't pay taxes. Is that, is that true? No. In fact, Jesus was the one that said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He could not have more explicitly said that they were to pay taxes to Caesar. Accusation number three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Is that true? Yes. He did declare himself to be the Christ. But again, it was not in the terms that they were accusing him of. It was in no way a position in which would have conflicted with the Roman authority. Verse 3, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate, after hearing these accusations, he turns over to Jesus and he says, Okay, let me hear it from your mouth. Is this true? Now you notice, out of all the accusations, which is the one that Pilate immediately latches onto? It's the one that has to do with Jesus being the king. Why? Because that's the only one he cares about. Pilate's job is to keep Israel under the foot of Rome. And if anyone is coming up as an insurrectionist with this idea of revolution and and war and fighting against uh, Rome, which, by the way, the Jews had a constant record of doing, then he wants to stomp it out. So the only accusation, the only thing he's interested in bringing up is, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate, of course, looking at this man who was very aware of this man, knew who he was, knew what he had been doing, knew what he had been preaching, looking at him, seeing him as not in any way a threat, he knows there's nothing to worry about with this man. But he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. It's Jesus' favorite response in this. You're saying it. You're the one saying it. Verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. This is his first exoneration of Christ. The first time, first of many, that he will say clearly, explicitly, there is no guilt in this man. Verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, here we get the fourth accusation of the council. They say, he's stirring up the people. Now, is that true or false? It's actually true. 
But it's false in that he wasn't stirring them up to go fight against Rome. He was stirring them up to serve the kingdom. He was stirring them up to repent, to follow God, to be restored. So, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Now, Galilee, as we know, is where Jesus was from. It was the, the area of Israel in the north, above Judea. Pilate hears this answer, and he immediately has an idea. And when they, he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So again, everybody's in Jerusalem for this feast. Herod, uh, who was not a Roman, Herod was sort of a puppet king in the, in the northern part of Israel, is in town as well. And Jesus, if he's from Galilee, hey, he belongs to Herod. Let's let Herod deal with it. So it could be that Pilate's trying to pass the buck, that he knows this is going to be a sticky situation. He doesn't really want to have to come to a clear verdict, and he sees a way out. It could also be that Pilate doesn't really understand Jewish customs, doesn't really understand a lot of the, the Jewish culture, and he knows that Herod does. So he says, well, let me, let me send him over to Herod to get his take on this thing. So he does. He sends him to Herod. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod's like, sweet, I heard about this guy. I've heard about his miracles. I've heard about all the things that he's done, the crowds that he draws. Maybe he can entertain me. Maybe he can do something that will actually be kind of interesting for me to watch. In verse 9, he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Note that. We'll come back to that. Jesus doesn't say a word to Pilate. He doesn't say a word. No response. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to, to Pilate. Here we see a bit of the character of this man, Herod, who not only allows his soldiers to beat and mock and blaspheme the Son of God, but also joins in himself. Verse 12, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Why are they friends all of a sudden? Because Pilate kind of threw Herod a bone by giving him this opportunity to question his witness, to question the accused. He's basically giving validity to Herod's position by including Herod in this trial. And now they're friends. And then we see the final verdict in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Exoneration number two. Pilate says, again, he's not guilty. He hasn't done anything. He's not guilty. And then exoneration number three, verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate makes it very clear that there is no reason, clearly, to crucify Jesus. Even Herod, in all of his flaws, sees through the accusations of the Sanhedrin council. Two witnesses, actually two judges, who have really no dog in the fight, are unbiased completely. Both see the innocence of Jesus. 
Kent Hughes, he notes this. He says, The agreement of such an unlikely pair about the political innocence of Jesus renders beyond doubt the absolute guiltlessness of Jesus. In fact, Herod's cruel mockery of Jesus placed in his judgment or placed his judgment that Jesus was innocent beyond question. He did not like Jesus, yet still found him innocent. Pilate was rightly convinced of Jesus' innocence. So you really couldn't ask for a more clear and obvious verdict that two men that really have no reason to like Jesus, one of them, Herod, actually dislikes Jesus, beat him, mocked him, but yet still found him innocent. There's no reason Jesus should be going to the cross. So Pilate says in verse 16, he concludes, I will therefore punish and release him. Okay, well, Pilate, if he's innocent, why are you willing to punish him? If he's innocent, why are you willing to beat him? And the simple answer is that Pilate does not want to send Jesus to the cross. He knows it's the wrong thing to do. But he's feeling the pressure from this religious group to do so. And he says, well, maybe I can mitigate their bloodthirst by beating this man to a pulp and sending him off. Maybe that will satiate their anger towards this man who's claiming to be God, claiming to be king. And of course, the answer from the Sanhedrin is, no, that's not enough. We want him dead. All the way to the cross. Beating is not enough. Verse 18, they all cried out together, away with this man, Release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. The man that basically did everything you're accusing Jesus of, set him free. And the other other gospels fill in the blanks for us that, that Pilate had a custom in which he would release one prisoner during the Feast of Passover. So Pilate sees an opportunity to escape the pressure of this situation by saying, hey, let's let the crowd decide. Do you want to to release this murderous robber who is an enemy of the state? Or do you want to release this man who you all seem to love and watch his miracles? Surprisingly, shockingly, you would imagine that the crowd would actually say, no, let Jesus free. But interestingly enough, the crowd immediately starts to shout, no, crucify him. We see the crowd now is, is guilty as well. They have the blood of Jesus on their hands as well. Pilate addressed them once more verse 20, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release. You should see the inner turmoil and conflict of Pilate in this moment as he is so wanting to release, wanting to release Jesus, knowing that's the right thing to do, but feeling this pressure coming from the crowd now even, and the Sanhedrin. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the trial of the Son of God, the illegal trial, the circus of a trial that Jesus willingly subjected himself to go through. Now, what can we learn from that? I want to kind of rethread the needle here and ask the question, what is here for us in this, this passage of Scripture? I want to look at it a little bit 
more closely. Now, in, in, the, in the beginning, I opened up the question, what are you doing with Christ? What will you do with Jesus? Here before us, we see lots of different paths to how to crucify Christ. We see Herod's path, Pilate's path, the crowd's path, the Sanhedrin's path, all of them leading in the blood guilt of crucifying the Son of God. So I would like to give you three ways to be a Christ crucifier. If you are interested in putting Jesus to death in your life, let me give you three ways to do that from this text. The first one is this. Fabricate fallacy. We see this in the council. Fabricate fallacy. See, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they had a problem. The problem was that Jesus was getting in the way of their authority. They didn't serve God. They served their position. They served the ministry. They didn't serve God. They served the ministry. And they loved their notoriety. Jesus was infringing on that. He was calling them into account. He was shining the light on the fact that they were actually filthy, that they were whitewashed tombs. Jesus had some harsh words to say about the religious elite in Israel, did he not? This was a problem. They had to deal with this. At first, they tried to just shut him down, didn't they? They said, well, maybe we'll engage him in verbal battles. You know, maybe we'll, we'll approach him and try to, try to theologically shut him down. Well, that didn't work. And for three years, Jesus is preaching truth, calling people to repentance, and calling out the religious elite of Israel for what they were, dead men's bones. The religious elite, unwilling to repent, unwilling to hear the truth of, the, of what Jesus is preaching, they have one option. Either they can repent and make Jesus the king, which they're unwilling to do, or they can kill him. So they start this process of moving Jesus towards the cross. They have to put him to death. Why? Because they are unwilling to share the control of their life with anyone else. The, the, the quickest and fastest path to crucify Christ in your life is to hold on to the control of it. To say, I will not share the power of my life and how I live it and how I rule it with anyone else, especially Jesus. The problem that Pharisees have is that Jesus is not going away. His influence is increasing. It's not decreasing. He's the real deal. They are the phonies, and it's beginning to become clear to everybody that these religious people that used to be looked up to actually are not who they said they were. And if they don't shut Jesus up soon, he's going to wreck their religious career. All of their college loans that they've paid, right, into studying Torah and, and becoming the religious elite are going to be wasted. They're going to be scrubbing bathrooms. The option is to lose it all or to shut the mouth of the one who's calling them out. They will not share authority with Jesus. So the solution is simple. The solution of what they do with Jesus is they say, well, first of all, we have to erode his credibility with people. We have to make people believe that he is not actually who he says he is. They begin by doing that, by coming up with false accusations, false witnesses, and once they realize that that, that will not work, they kill him. Now, how much different is that from our modern-day reality? 
The same problem that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had with Jesus is the same problem that many have with Jesus today. They cannot imagine giving over authority of their life to someone else, let alone Jesus. And so the problem that they have today is the same problem that the the, the Sanhedrin had. The real Jesus is calling them to surrender, and they're not willing to do that. Jesus is not going away with modernity. Have you noticed that? There was a time where people thought that with the rise of intellectualism and academia and all of the science and all the history that was coming out, that Jesus and religion would just go away and that the future would be ruled by people that were secular thinkers. And in the reality, that didn't happen. It didn't happen. Jesus is still here. He's still influencing things. He's still influencing people. And the people that want Jesus to die, want him to go away, they have a real problem with that. He's not going away with the rise of first century history. The more we learn about the first century, the more we have proof that Jesus did exist. It wasn't until the 60s that they actually found out something that proved that Pontius Pilate was a historical figure. The more we dig, the more we find the validity of Jesus' message. He's not going away. If you're sitting in here this morning and you're saying, I will not submit my life to Jesus Christ, let me just tell you, he's not going away. The pressure will only increase. The more that you push him, the more truth will come because he's the real deal. And the the secular alternative to Jesus is not. And it will fade and it will fail. So you have two options just like the Sanhedrin did, either you can bend your knee to the Christ or you can kill him. And this is exactly what the secular culture is trying to do every day all around us with the person of Jesus Christ. They want to crucify him. They want to crucify his influence. They do this by attacking the authority of Scripture, don't they? You can't trust the Bible. They do it by changing the gospel to say that it's some kind of a bigoted message, that it's out of date, that it's uneducated, that only uneducated rural people believe in the gospel. The educated people in the cities are far too advanced for that. These are the false narratives that our culture is trying to create in order to crucify Christ so that they don't have to answer to him. But he's not going away because he's the king and he is seated at the right hand of God. The first way to crucify Christ is to fabricate some kind of a false reality about him. And let me just ask you, if there's anyone in the room this morning that that is just at that point where they are unwilling to even hear anything about Jesus, how is that working out for you? Secondly, the second path to crucify Christ we see in the person of Herod, and that is to prioritize pleasure. Herod took a different approach. He wasn't as blatant as the Sanhedrin. He, he wasn't out night and day trying to find a way to crucify Christ. He was in his palace enjoying his life. He was in his palace uh, just suckling all that his, his position and his influence and his, his money had to offer. He was really just satiated in, in his himself and all the things that he cared about and all the things that he loved. And Jesus crosses Herod's path and he doesn't see Jesus as a threat. He sees him as a possible source of entertainment. That's Herod's view. Herod, by the way, the same man that took the head of John the Baptist because he was having an affair with his brother's wife and his brother's wife's daughter 
dancing at a drunken party caught the eye of Herod, so he granted to her any wish that, he, that she wanted, which, of course, after consulting her mother, she said she wanted the head of John the Baptist because he called them out for their affair. This is the same spineless, weak Herod who is so, so obsessed with entertainment that he won't stand for anything. When he encounters Christ, what does he do? He sees it as an opportunity. Hey, maybe this guy can actually give me something to do. Maybe Herod's bored. He's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's lame. I'd rather be in Caesarea, right? Here I am. I'm bored. I have nothing to do. Oh, Jesus is on trial. Hey, Pilate wants to send Jesus over to you to examine him. That's great. Maybe I could see him do a miracle. Maybe he'll turn some water into wine. Maybe he can do something entertaining for me. You see how he views Christ? He doesn't see him as Lord. He doesn't see him as king. He sees him as an opportunity to better himself. Now, realize it or not, this is a path to crucifying Christ. And to many people, Jesus is not seen as Lord. He's seen as a possible entertainment. He's seen as, you know, maybe something I could get from him. Maybe there's something that, that he has that I want. But let me just say this and say it very clearly. If Jesus is only someone that you come to because of what he can give you, you will despise him. It's only a matter of time. I see it pastorally all the time. People come into the church not because they love Jesus, but because they think that maybe there's something for them. Maybe they can achieve some kind of a, a status find some kind of a, a prosperity gospel here where, where God's just going to give them whatever they want. And then when they realize that Jesus doesn't exist to give them what they want, he exists to give them what they need, they demonize Jesus and run out the door eventually to crucify him. This is the reality. Now, how do I know if I'm a, how do I know if I'm a Herod? How do I know? Well, ask yourself this. Is, Je is Jesus merely someone of intrigue to you? Or is he the most formative reality in your life and your decisions? Jesus will not hang out in the place of your life as an entertainer. He's not interested in being someone that is, is there to be your genie in the bottle. Someone to be there that, that's just going to give you what you think you want in life. He is there to rule. He is there to be the king of all things, and he will not sit in this middle place. Herod, of course, in the end, what did he do? He sent Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. He didn't stand for him. He didn't go to bat for him. He mocked him, beat him, and he sent him away. The third path to crucify Christ, not only is to fabricate a fallacy or to prioritize pleasure, but thirdly, to negotiate neutrality. And this is perhaps the saddest one of all. We see this in the person of Pilate. Pilate found himself in an interesting position. See, Pilate was no chump. He wasn't like Herod. He wasn't um, in his position because daddy was Herod the Great. He was in his position because he worked his way up. He was a foot soldier. Then he became a commander of the armies, he was a good administrator. He was intelligent. He was level-headed. He was strong. He would have to be to be in a position of a governor of Judea. This man was a thinker. He was intelligent. 
Pilate was in a tough situation. History tells us very clearly now that, that Pilate, when he interacted with Jesus, when Jesus came across his path, he was on very thin ice with the Jews and very thin ice with Rome. As you probably could imagine, Rome didn't really have a lot of patience when it came to their generals or governors not accomplishing the goals that they wanted. When Pilate was actually um, inaugurated or whatever to be sent over to be the the prefect of Judea, um, he decided he was going to display and flex a little bit. He was going to display his pomp and his power. So, So when he comes into Jerusalem for the first time, the city of God where the temple is, he comes with his soldiers, and the soldiers would have these long spears, and on tops of the spears would be this little statue of Herod, from here up, probably shirtless, or not Herod, pardon me, uh, Caesar, okay? And they thought Caesar was God. So the, the goal was, is that as they're marching into Jerusalem, and Pilate is showing off all of his power and his military support, showing that he has the full backing of, of, of the Roman Empire, that the Jews were supposed to bow to this parade in honor of Caesar. Now, there's a real problem with that if you're a Jew, especially after you spent 70 years in exile for idolatry, okay? The Jews... They had problems in the first century, but one of them was not idolatry. They had learned their lesson, and they said, we will not bow to a statue of Caesar. We will not do it. So typically, what had happened before Pilate took his position, he, uh, the, the, his predecessors were more lenient on this. He would, they would actually ask the, the guards or the, the soldiers to take the peace statue of, of, of Caesar off of their spears and march in so that the Jews could bow without any kind of a problem. Well, Pilate, this is the kind of man he was, he said, I'm not going to do that. We will march into town with Caesar on our spears, and the Jews will bow. And guess what? They did not. They refused caused a huge riot, a huge problem, which ended essentially in the Jews turning their heads and saying, either cut our heads off or don't, but we will not bow to Caesar. Okay, so just, I say that to imagine the kind of precarious situation that that Pilate is in. He's on thin ice. There's multiple things that happen in history that show that he was not in good graces with the Jewish people. He took all of their Corbin treasury of the temple and used it to make an aqueduct, I mean, he, he, he literally um, slashed and cut all of these uh, people from the north that were clinging to the horns of the altar in the temple. Uh, he had no regard for the holy things. He had no regard for, for anything that the Jews cared about. And he's on extremely thin ice. And now here he is. This is probably his last strike. And, and he has an option. He has a choice. Either he can let Jesus go like he knows he's supposed to because he knows he's innocent. Or he can succumb to the Jewish crowd, the Jewish Uh, desire, which is to crucify him. He knows that if he sends Jesus away free, that he potentially will lose his job, that the power of Rome will be at odds with him, but he knows that if he sends him to the cross, he has to deal with the reality that he crucified an innocent man. To make things worse, his wife had a dream the night before about Jesus was haunting him. She sends word to him saying, whatever you do, leave that man alone. Can you imagine Pilate standing there? Hey, by the way, your wife just gave you a note. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. Whatever you do, just leave this guy alone. I mean, Pilate is just feeling the squeeze of this moment and he knows it. What's he going to do with Jesus? What's he going to do? And of course, the saddest, some of the saddest words in the Bible in verse 23 
their voices prevailed. As the crowd is screaming out to crucify Christ and Pilate in this moment, being known as a man who has his mind made up, a man who is just, a man who makes decisions quickly, knows he only has a matter of seconds to decide what to do with the Son of God, and he makes the decision that he would regret for the rest of his three years of life until he committed suicide three years later after losing his job, and that was to send Jesus to the cross. Why? Because the crowd wanted it. Why does Pilate crucify Christ? It wasn't because he knew, he didn't know. It wasn't because he was uneducated. It wasn't because he was unsure. It was because he was a slave to his position and to the voices of other men. Pilate couldn't imagine facing the consequences of doing what he knew was right, handling the Christ in the way that he knew he should have couldn't imagine it. I just have to ask you this morning, are you that man? I sat in the seat of Pilate for 17 years in my life, refusing, although I knew Jesus was the Son of God. I knew he was going to call me into account. I knew I would answer for my life. I full-on blatantly refused to worship him for most of my life simply because I could not stand to think about the ridicule I might receive for standing for him, the sin I might miss out on. The world had its tenons in me. Beware of the status quo. Some of you in here know Jesus is God. You know. You know. You don't need any more convincing. And you're afraid to let go. You're afraid to show up at work tomorrow and tell your coworkers that you did the uneducated thing and chose to follow Jesus. I want to end with two quick points of application and we'll get out of here. One is for the believers in this room. If you're a believer in here, I just want to encourage you in one thing. This scene that we look at looks like one of the greatest failures that God could have ever possibly orchestrated. It seems and appears as though the sinfulness of men is winning, isn't it? Pilate chooses wrong. Back up a little further, Judas betrays. Peter denies the religious elite, bloodthirsty mob. Herod mocks his guards, beat him. This seems like the most epic failure God sent his son into the world and he was crucified, the most brutal and painful death one could imagine. It looks like a failure. Okay, but just let me, let me just encourage you, believers, that the single greatest atrocity known to human history was the cross. And God, in his providence, used that same exact moment to accomplish the single greatest gift, the gospel. He took all of the ill will, all of the sinfulness, all of the hatred, all of the mob mentality, all of the cruelty of these men, and he providentially guided it into an event that would redeem the sin of all humans that would believe it. Isn't that incredible? How much more is God providentially and sovereignly able to work out even the worst things in your life to the greatest eternal realities? Amen? And my second point I want to speak to anyone in here who's not a believer. 
Anyone in here who, who, who you would never know that you're not a believer because maybe you come to church every week. And maybe you've been here week after week. You'll think, no one will ever know that I don't believe in this. And they don't preach to me in here because they assume that we're all Christians. Well, I want to speak to that person this morning. And I want to ask you the question, where were you when Jesus was crucified? Which one of these characters are you? Are you the one that is just fully, uh, just fully bent on seeing Jesus crucified? Are you the one that just sees him as a, a point of entertainment or interest? Are you the one that knows he's true and you're avoiding him? Either way, the reality is, if you have not received Jesus as Lord, you are on the path to crucify him, to put him to death. All of us have the blood of Christ on our hands. I want to read you something by... John Stott, he said this, Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and Jews had together conspired against Jesus. More important still, we ourselves are also guilty. If we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priests, to our ambition like Pilate. Listen to this. Where were, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants. Guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see, listen to this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his or her share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Here is my problem. I look at this story and I don't think I'm not in here. I think I'm all over this story. I think I am Judas. I am the one that has betrayed Christ time and time again so I could get some kind of an earthly pleasure, pleasure, 30 shekels of silver, whatever it is. I look at Peter and I see him denying Christ and I think, how many times have I done that? Even as a Christian, when the squeeze was on, I said, no, I don't know him. I see myself in this picture. How many times have I been like the, 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 the council who is bent on shutting the mouth of Jesus so they don't have to listen to him? Flipping off sermons in the car because I don't want to be convicted of something. How many times have I been like Pilate, knowing the right thing to do, but succumbing to the fear of man over and over again, caring more about what people think than what is true? How many times have I been like Herod and walked through the doors of the sanctuary saying, what can I get from Christianity rather than what can I give to Christ? I am these men. I have to share my hand. I have to share my part in the blood guilt of Jesus. So do you. If we were there, we would have done the same thing. So what hope does that leave for us? What hope does that leave for us? I want to introduce you guys lastly to one character in this story that always gets skipped over. His name's Barabbas. 
We don't have him on record as saying much of anything. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what he did. Barabbas was a sinner. In fact, one of the worst. He was rightfully accused of the crimes. He was deserving of a crucifixion. He committed crimes against the state, elicited people to commit crimes with him. It's actually thought that the two robbers on Jesus' sides were probably his henchmen. He lived a life of disobedience to God, yet he was set free with no charge. Jesus was sinless. He was wrongfully accused. He was deserving of freedom. He was committed no crime. He lived a perfect life. He was the son of God. He lived a life perfectly submitted to God, yet was brutally beaten and crucified in the manner that Barabbas was meant to have been. Let me tell you who I want to be in this story. I want to be Barabbas. This is one of the most astounding pictures of the gospel we have in the New Testament. Here is a man deserving of punishment and crucifixion and hell, and here is a man who is perfect, deserving of nothing but honor and respect and worship, and yet Jesus stands in the seat of the one crucified, and Barabbas goes away free, having done nothing to earn it. He goes away free. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. I look at this story and I think, but what if, I, what if I can't help but be Herod? What if I can't help but be Pilate? What if I can't help but be Peter? What if I, what if I think I'm gonna say, say, say yes, but then when the, the, the squeeze is on, I deny Christ? What if I can't help but be Judas? The good news of the gospel is not get your stuff together and don't be Herod. The good news of the gospel is be Barabbas, the one that did nothing to earn or merit his freedom, but yet it was given at the cost and the back and the life of Jesus Christ who absorbed everything that was meant for Barabbas. That is the gospel. That is good news. I was driving out here. I live in Grants Pass now, and I was driving out here, and I'd just been so rude to my family all morning. I'd been rude to my wife, rude to my kids, short with everybody, selfish. So frustrated because for three days in a row, I've been telling myself, stop being a jerk. Stop being a jerk. Stop being a jerk. I just couldn't seem to get out of that mode. Everything I did, I just couldn't seem to fix it. And so this Friday, I'm driving out to Medford to pick up something. And as I'm driving back, I'm thinking about this sermon, and I'm thinking, why can't I get my stuff together? And then I remember in this section, it was a part I wasn't even thinking about preaching about, Barabbas. And I realized that Barabbas didn't deserve anything but pain and suffering and punishment and crucifixion, yet he was given Jesus his freedom. And I realized that that was me. I realized that I'm Barabbas, praise God, that I've taken Jesus' freedom and given him my garbage. And it was amazing how quickly I snapped out of everything I'd been struggling with. I instantly had patience for my kids, love for my wife, a servant's attitude. I instantly went home and began loving my family better. What changed? Nothing other than realizing that I'd been forgiven, that I deserved hell. And because of Christ's sacrifice, now I'm free. That's the power of the gospel. 
It's the power of saying, Jesus, you are my sacrifice. So what will you do with the Son of God? I just would encourage you to embrace what he's given you. To bend your knee. The thing that kept me from Jesus for so long was fear that he wasn't good. And when I realized that he was, the knee bent without question. He became my Lord. He's so good, amen? Let's all stand and pray. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to subject yourself to such a trial as this, or that you were willing to take on what I deserved, and that you've given us perfection, given us freedom, given us righteousness. I pray that we would live in such a way that reflects that. Lord Jesus, give us faith to believe you, to make you Lord, or keep us from being those that crucify you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry I kept you guys. Lord bless you. We'll see you later.